Today's episode brought to you by BossPods.com. Want a podcast like a boss? We've got the inside word on how to set up a podcast that's actually worth something. We've got the industry's best to show you how. BossPods.com. Podcast like a boss. When did we first meet? We would have been like... Tween. 12? Yep. 13? We were tweens. In Ormond? Yep. Uh... And then we hung out a lot for like three or four years mm-hmm. and we just never saw each other again yep. until today. And when you first got in touch with me, I had to, because I just call you Al. Yeah. So I had to say, who's Alistair Marks? You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, it was yeah. a really, and then I saw your face and it's, you know, it's, it's it, Al. <laughs> it's, the, it's the face. It's the face. From the 12 to 16 time period. With a beard. Yeah. <laughs> And you know, friends, that that silly little piano means one silly little thing, and that is that it's time for another epic ramble on Coming Up Next with Alistair Marks. That's me, I'm Alistair Marks, and this is my epic ramble podcast where I speak to some of the world's most inspiring creatives about how they've managed to create a life of their own design and joining me today in the chat cave in the ramble room is a woman who i've known for a long time we met uh when we were about 12 13 while we were in school i haven't seen or spoken to her in about 15 years and then all of a sudden she's on master chef she's got her own book she's got her own show and suddenly all I can see everywhere is Alice in Frames. I'm speaking, of course, of the one and only Alice Zavslavsky. You may know her from her time on MasterChef. You can catch her on Crunch Time at 7.30 every morning on Channel Go. You'll find her words in the feed in the weekly review which hits your letterboxes across Melbourne. And you can find her at Alice in Frames on all the social media. What a joy for me to sit down with my old friend Alice and chew the fat. Before we get into that, friends, I'd just like to let you know, good people of the Coming Up Next work, that the sound quality of these podcasts has most certainly gone up to 11, and I mean in terms of quality, not volume. And that's all thanks to the good people at Rode Microphones. Rode Microphones deliver you superior quality audio at an affordable price, so if you're looking to start your own podcast, TV show, blog, uh, video record something that has audio in it check out road.com to find out more information on their products that's r-o-d-e.com to find out more information on their audio recording products and while you're on your computer you might as well jump on to facebook look up coming up next hit the like button do the same for allison frames Then jump on iTunes or Stitcher, whichever platform you prefer to use. Look up Coming Up Next, hit the subscribe button, give us a rating, give us a review, and I will continue to bring you more awesome guests on a weekly basis to your ear holes with superior audio quality, and you know the rest. I mean, it's funny, something that you said to me on the phone is about this amazing time that we're at in our lives now where especially I think when you do um, kind of break away from people that you, you, you know quite well and intimately and then you start seeing them 
and you kind of see, incre- especially with social media, you see incrementally their build in their life and, and their career. Although I don't think we actually had any awareness of what you were doing until you started on MasterChef a few right. years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the last time we had had any contact, you told me that you were a teacher. I was a teacher. Mm. Yes. So I was um, a teacher for three years at a top tier school. Mm. Um, and I actually, I I thought that would be my career path yeah. once I actually got in there. When I was growing up, I, I had heaps of different sort of aspirations and ideas of what my future would be. Mm. Um, but when I got into the classroom, the thing that really resonated for me was that it felt like I was on stage mm. and that the kids were my audience <laughs> and I could engage them and I could see their light bulbs. And that really excited me, you know, the bing, those yeah, moments. Yeah. And that still excites me. That's still, I feel like I actually am still a teacher, but just have a bigger classroom. Mm. <laughs> you're no longer a school teacher. Now you're a life teacher. I'm a life teacher. I read your website. I coined it. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. It's if you've done your research. Always Google. Yep. Aliceinframes.com. Yep. <laughs> Sneaky plug. Good. Uh, so one thing that I'm fascinated by is the kind of inception of people's creativity and Often it's hard to kind of nail down what that was. I actually recently did an interview with my grandfather who would always be encouraging me to write uh, and tell stories and lo and behold, that's what I do now Mm. with my life. Mm -hmm. Uh, Something I ask every guest who comes on the show is if they remember the first time that they did the thing that they... It started off being, when was the first time you entertained? And then when I started having people who don't necessarily entertain, I had to adjust the question. So, Mm -hmm. and with you, I guess it's, there's so many uh, feathers to your bow. (laughs) You know, you're you're a performer, but you're also a teacher and you're also a cook and, or a chef. um, I'd prefer cook. And a writer. (laughs) Definitely not a chef. (laughs) Cook. um, And a writer. And you've managed to create this kind of thing for yourself. so do you remember the first time that you did that thing and you were like, fuck yeah, this is what I <laughs> want to do? You probably didn't say fuck because you were like young, I'm sure. But. Yes. Yeah. Well, I think um, it's true. I wear a lot of hats. Uh, I'm not wearing one today. Do you wear um, three Michelin hats? <laughs> yeah. uh. Uh, very good. Very good. Um, so actually they're Michelin stars. Shit. <laughs> good food hats, but it's, yeah, it's good. Yeah. close. I got. I saw where you, you're you, going. You, you, right. you, you got my reference. I did. I, I picked up what you were putting down. And anyone out there who is a foodie is now turning off. <laughs> yeah. Goodbye. I'm not listening to this. <laughs> um, so all of my different roles, I think I had moments where I went, fuck yeah, this is what I want to do. Mm. Um, I don't get to swear very often in other things that I do. So I'm going to, you're giving me carte blanche. I I am. I told you what the acronym of my show was. So it's a good, it's a good one. Um, so coming up next Tuesday. Well, no, it's coming up next, but I release it on a Tuesday. Good. So very good. At the end of the show, I can often say coming up next Tuesday. Yeah. Very. Oh yeah. So that's yes. As we were. Um, so back to your question, I'm actually stalling so that I can figure out a really clever answer one of the things that i like to make reference to is when i was a kid i have a lot of cousins and we would often write and make plays and it's not directly what i do now i don't do plays but it was creating a show and we'd put it on for my family and so that's 
for me, that was the kind of inception. Yep. That's definitely, my cousins and I would definitely do that. Um, and I would orchestrate it all. Yeah, so yeah. I was the director um, <laughs> and obviously the star. Yeah. And there are photos of me, um, actual physical photographs, not on a scrapbook mm. um, app um, of, of me dressed up as like a nana or something like in a rocking chair with yeah. a shawl and <laughs> pretending to be something. And I was doing that from a very young age, but even just the idea because I think a lot of what I do and what I love to do is create connections Mm. build sparks and my mum tells the story of the fact that you know before I learned to talk and before I learned to walk I was smiling and engaging people Mm. like as like a baby like came out of the womb smiling basically and Mm. I think that um, that's something that kind of has always stuck with me and I love seeing people happy really Mm. is that really cheesy of course. <laughs> but the best stories usually are cheesy. Good. Uh, and the best cheese is usually got a great story. I see what you did there. I like it. Good. I'm going to use it. Please. Unless it's like a brie. I mean, I don't know if they have great stories. Brie's got great stories. Does it? Every cheese has a story. Yeah. Yeah. Brie is from Brie in oh. France. Well, there you go. There you go. Yeah. And Bordeaux from Lyon. Yeah. Did my research. Really? Yeah. There you go. That's weird. Really? Anyway, we're digressing. <laughs> Let's talk more about uh, the irreverent philosophy of life. I'm reading my whiteboard. Okay. <laughs> and um, I suppose you found a way to make connections and to make people happy through food. Uh, and something that really struck me on aliceinframes.com when I went there to read about you was this idea that you talk about food is like the first stop or the first point of connection between people and this idea of sitting down to a meal, breaking bread, which is probably something that's been lost a lot in culture, in in Western culture today with television and smartphones and um, enough distractions to last the rest of humanity. Yep. so bringing it back to this idea of sitting down together and breaking bread is a really, I think it's a really awesome vantage point to take things from. Thanks. Well, I, I think that I, the reason why I take that vantage point is because food is the great equalizer. Mm. We've all got to eat. So it's um, whenever I say that I work in food, everybody's eyes light up. Yeah. Because <laughs> everyone's got something that they want to know or um, some memory because food is so multisensory and, and evocative. Mm. So um, it's a really easy point to start from. And I worry about the generations to come. You know, are they going to have those same strong food memories if all that they get is coming home, you know, popping some whatever in the microwave and, mm. you know, eating it in front of the TV, which, hey, I don't mind, you know, a Netflix and grill <laughs> session, but as far as I'm concerned, you know, there's something special about actually sitting face to face and and eating with someone. Yeah, and talking about your life. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Making jokes. Where are the snacks? Hint, hint. Yeah. Uh, would you like a drink? <laughs> no, I think I'm all right, but all right. thank you for now. <laughs> I'm very. Uh, I always forget. I get so swept up in the doing of the interview and the doing of the stuff that I forget to be a host as well. <laughs> um. I'm curious about your kind of, first of all, your uh, decision to step into teaching and then also how you kind of then leapt from teaching to actually pursuing 
and following uh, what I assume was a more burning kind of passion for you in in food and writing and performing? Well, it's funny. I never thought that I would be a teacher. Uh, but then when I look back while I was doing these performances with my cousins, I'd also mm. be writing little textbooks for them mm-hmm. or I'd be kind of, you know, or we'd be playing at teacher and student, which is... Did you grade them? Um, yeah, I definitely graded them. I gave ticks and crosses and felt really... Um, kind of authority, I felt powerful. Mm. Um, And that's certainly not why I became a teacher. Again, I think that um, the real reason that I became a teacher is because I was, so I finished school. I've always been creative. I've always wanted to be a performer essentially. Mm. Um, But in year 10, um, my, both my parents are academics and they basically made me choose one creative subject. Right. So it had, to, you know, I had to choose between art, drama, music, dance, all of them, and I chose drama. That mm. was my one, and all my other subjects were academic subjects, um, and I topped the state in drama. And all my other subjects were, you know, kind of I, I just didn't really care as much about them. Mm. And so when it came to choosing my university course, they wanted me to to do. I knew I, um, they wanted me to do like a marketing management psychology at Monash. And you needed that's to get quite a mouthful. Oh, quite a mouthful. Um, so boring. No offense to anyone listening that's in marketing management psychology. I mean, I think I actually utilize those skills all the time now in um, engaging audiences. But mm. at the time, like, I'm so glad that what actually happened was I got a 24 for methods. Oh yeah. And you needed a 25. <laughs> and so, but because I'd gotten a 50 in drama, I yeah. said to my parents, "Look, just let me do the most academic, creative arts course that I can find." And that was creative arts at Melbourne Uni, which is no longer mm. around because of the Melbourne model. I was actually, this is another story, I was actually the very last person to do creative arts and teaching as a double degree. Wow. Um, yes, which is a wow. And as a result, um, I actually got the Dean's Honours Award for that course. <laughs> is that because you were the only person eligible? Because I was the only person eligible. And the funny thing there is the reason I was the last one left is because I failed 11 units of my course. <laughs> so I was the last one standing. Have that, Dean. Oh, I love it. I love it. And um, it's, it's like I'm the Stephen Bradbury of academia. Yeah. But Well um, played. Thank you. Um, and the reason why is because I, um, I think creative arts is really hard to assess. Mm. And when you, when you take your passion and you are graded or your given parameters within which to work, it's mm. actually really limiting. And um, it feels really um, restrictive and just wrong, I suppose. That's what people say, right? Don't mm. don't turn your passion into your job because you'll, you'll grow to hate it. I've never heard that. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, because I suppose <laughs> the people that you meet are like the opposite. But um, I also don't meet people in my work. Yeah. I, I work in a cave. <laughs> yeah. Is this the cave? This is, this is the cave. It's a great look. It's a man cave. Yes. Yeah. Should I describe it? No, I'm, I'm, I'm getting off course. So part of the reason why I did teaching in the first place is because I was halfway through this degree that I just did not know how I was going to get a job out of mm. because I was doing it because I loved it and I really enjoyed learning and um, we did doing Suzuki walks for an entire tute. Wow. <laughs> yeah, that was dance. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I thought, when I finish this course, I'm going to creative arts. I'm going to be creatively, artistically 
unemployed. Mm. So I was walking fun past employed. fun employed, so fun employed, and I was walking past the teaching faculty and saw that if you did a double degree in creative arts and teaching, then you could take a year off your course basically. Wow. Um, and so I thought, awesome, I'll do that. Mm. And as soon as I stepped into the classroom for the first time, stood in front of those students, it was like the curtains open and the Alice show rolled in. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and I loved it. Yeah, yeah. yeah I really did. Um, and so the, your question, I suppose, is, is that double question, how did I get from teaching to what I do now or, or was there a burning passion that took me out of teaching? Was it push or pull? Mm. And it was kind of, I'm a yes person. I say yes to stuff. Mm. So I had been doing some little cooking classes on the side to learn how to have better dinner parties right. at William Anglis. And that's where they were hosting the auditions for MasterChef. Right. And um, they were looking for people who had personality and could cook. Mm. And I had never really watched the show, but I was sold on it because I thought, well, it's a great opportunity to learn more and, you know, imagine the stories. So I said yes and I auditioned and my head of school said that they were with me all the way. Mm. Um, I, it was the last three weeks of the year. So I'd done all my assessment, all my marking, all my exams um, were marked. All of my reports were written. So it was basically just hand over. Thank you, wham, bam, you're out. And then a week into auditions... I was basically told that if I didn't come to work on Monday morning, I didn't have a job. Right. <laughs> so, you know, something that felt very secure and comfortable yeah. suddenly became like, you know, I'd had the rug pulled from under me. And um, How did yeah. that feel? Well, I think that um, at that point, that was a really, that was like the universe testing me, saying, do you want to stay on a really clear trajectory i was 26 and you know head of department at a like an aps school um I an aps, APS so it's like a top tier school okay you know private school mm -hmm. basically the youngest head of department that they'd had mm. you know and um it's amazing it's 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 pretty awesome mm. i was actually again i was given the role i think partly as a bit of a joke because <laughs> the actual head of school was away yeah. and the stand-in thought well we've got to replace the you know, Depp Head of Humanities, mm. why don't we give the gig to Alice and see what she does with it? <laughs> and I think you I did a great them. job. I showed them. Um, you know, we had Medieval Day where I had a suckling pig on a spit and the kids all brought in feast food from medieval times. So I assume this was not Yeshiva College. This was not Yeshiva College. Um, it shall remain nameless for the purposes <laughs> of this story. Yeah. And basically that Monday morning, I didn't tell my parents because um, they would have lost it. Like mm. I still, I was still in the top 50. I hadn't even gotten into the 24. Yeah. And I didn't respond to the email. I just didn't turn up to work. And All that right. was the day. It's like if this was a movie of my life, this yeah. would have been like the music. <laughs> that would have been because that was the day that I got into the top 24. Wow. And it was a challenge where you basically could step forward and cook mm. and you either stayed or you went home. Or you could stay back and you'd then cook another day. Mm. And I just thought, well, I've taken this chance already. I'm just gonna, you know, I'm just gonna dive. Mm. And um, it was the experience itself was really, really difficult. Uh, but when I came out of it, I just had this platform that I just had never imagined possible in as short a time as I had. Mm. And it's just been um, 
chipping away, you know, continuing to dive off that platform, right? Yeah. It's brilliant. It's amazing. Thanks. I'm sure the um, the experience of kind of removing that level and that layer of security and stability from your life must have been quite a nerve-wracking one. Yes, um, certainly it was. And I think the entire experience of MasterChef is designed to be a nerve-wracking one. Right. It, it challenges you in ways that you never thought possible. Mm. Um, and I never, I'm not a person that, that lives by routine, which is kind of why teaching probably didn't suit me. Mm. You know, I'm a fan of the Nobel Prize, if you know what I mean. <laughs> um, and so I, I thought that I could really deal with the level of uncertainty, mm. but not knowing what time you wake up in the morning. You know, not knowing whether you were packing or unpacking that night. Mm. That stuff messes with your head Mm. like nothing else. Um, And that actually will continue to be a driver for me because I gave up a lot psychologically, emotionally, mentally, physically as well for the opportunity to be on the show and for the platform that I have. Mm. So I've got to make it work and make it worthwhile. Yeah. You certainly seem to be doing that. Thank you. (laughs) Um, I'm, I'm, I'm curious and I don't know how much or how little you can talk about it, mm-hmm. but what is the actual process of getting from the first audition through to the top 24? Um, well, I think the great thing is that the show has been running for so many years that a lot of this stuff is no longer a you know, mystery. No, it's no longer a mystery, uh, which means that I can talk about it. Mm. So essentially it's people don't realize how long the process actually takes. So it's about nine months. From go to woe. Wow. So from the first audition where you bring in a cold plate to the executive producers to the final kind of goodbye at finale when the, all the confetti comes down, mm. that's nine months of your life. And they give out the three Michelin hats. All the hats. <laughs> so um, most of that process, basically once that cold audition is up, then you go through a massive psych exam as well. Like um, they really get to know you. Mm. And then they know how you're going to respond to situations, yeah. Um, which they then will utilize as part of story arcs and things. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, but as far as then getting into the top 24, you know, there are a few auditions. You meet, like, you cook for the judges, and then you just start cooking in smaller and smaller groups until finally. I think the process changes year to year as far mm. as the top 50 to the top 24. But in our year, basically. We had a um, top 50 in Melbourne Mm -hmm. and that was two weeks lockdown where they were kind of, I think more so testing our resolve and our tenacity because the first top 50 cook was eight hours of standing around. Wow. Because one thing everybody wants to know and I'm still like eight years down the track surprised that people actually don't just know this offhand but there are hours in between cooking the food and the judges eating it for the cameras. Mm. So, <laughs> but they do, the, the way that they get around that is they actually come and taste the food. As soon as the clock stops, that's all real. And then they'll come and taste the food. Mm. So they know what they're going to say, but they've just got really good poker faces. So you've got no idea. Um, and so that first top 50 cook was um, 50 people being tasted and you had to stand for eight hours waiting, watching everybody get judged. And there were people that asked for stools. There were people that complained and those people didn't make it, Mm. you know, and whether that 
is because they didn't cook as well because they were under so much pressure and they crumbled or whether that's because this is a a team effort, Mm. you know, we're part of the cast. So as you would know, working with difficult cast members, they don't tend to get, you know, second second round gigs. Mm. Um, So I kind of, having studied creative arts, I kind of knew that I had to play the game. Yeah, yeah. You know, in that way and kind of, you know, be a great warm prop. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I was the last one tasted that day. Right. So after eight hours, my chicken, Georgian walnut chicken, looked like a turd, like <laughs> literally a pile of crap. Yeah. And I remember Matt and George looking down at it, looking up at me, giving a little smirk <laughs> and saying, so Matt saying, so what am I supposed to be tasting? <laughs> <laughs> That was about it. (laughs) Yeah. And what was their feedback for you? Do you remember? That first challenge? Yeah. um, They were surprised that I chose that dish. They said, is this all you have? Um, You know, are you just going to keep cooking Georgian food Mm. or is there more to you? And I actually, I found it quite perplexing. I think that part of the process of MasterChef is really beneficial for someone who is planning on continuing to work in this game Mm. it helps you understand your personal brand Mm -hmm. and you know your place and i think that um i was watching people on my season um like amina who was um egyptian cross korean Mm. who was cooking egyptian korean food and getting amazing feedback for it and thinking oh okay well they want me to cook my cuisine as well so i'll cook georgian food and yet every time that i cooked a georgian dish Mm. i would just get poo-pooed and it was when i would cook you know something a bit left of field or something a bit quirky because that was my <laughs> your shtick. that's my shtick yeah. um that's that's when i'd get the kudos yeah 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 well um and what's the i guess the process like i had a friend um who uh worked on master chef like from a, a crew perspective mm. and some of the things that i kind of learned about the process were quite fascinating and again i'm not sure what you can or can't sort of talk about from that point of view but i am um immensely curious because you see the way that they package it uh and w- with reality tv in general the way that it's always kind of presented as mm-hmm. this really spontaneous um real life kind of example uh of whatever the show is about uh so i guess i'm interested from your point of view what the whole process of creating the show was like particularly from someone who did have a background or an interest in um, in drama and the arts. Mm. I think that um, you quickly learn that they're going to try and get the best shot. So mm. part of the reason why MasterChef has been so much more successful than, say, other shows is because of the production values. Like it's a really schmick show. Polished. It's polished. Oh, yeah. And that, and that takes time. So our day would start at about 5 a.m., when the cameramen and the story producers would come into the house and ask us how we're feeling for the day. Yeah. <laughs> um, and again, like it, it might be 5am, it might be 7am. We're not told what time we're waking up. Our alarm clock is like... So it's set for you. It's set for you. Yeah, well. Wow. Like there is no um, alarm clock. The house um, producer will come downstairs or mm. wherever and just say, wake up, it's now. Um, and so <laughs> again, you know, you can imagine... Generally what time are you going to bed? Uh, it depends. So sometimes the worst examples, I'm going to give you the worst because I want to make your oh, listeners yeah. cringe. Um, Let's be dramatic. 
let's be dramatic. So there were a few times, let's say, where it would have been a team challenge. Mm-hmm. So we'd finish up by about 11 um, at night, at mm. 12 o'clock at night. Then we would go home and because elimination was the next day, people would pack. Um, and then, you know, they'd be packing till about one thirty, and mm. then they'd be up again at 5 to be talking about how they feel and how much they don't want to go home. Mm. So I think psychologically, you know, doing that week in, week out definitely takes its toll. Yeah. And they know when to push you as well. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I think, you know, there are then once you wake up and once you're up and about, even the drive ups. So they've got sponsors. So the car sponsor needs to look, those cars need to look good. So Mm. if they've got a drive up and down that driveway for two hours, before they get that shot, we're in that car and we've just got to sit yeah. <laughs> and wait. So you kind of would try and sit with your friends, like get in <laughs> to the right car. Because yeah. some people were not morning people. And I think people that were not morning people avoided being in my car. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was a bit too chipper, I think, for them. Can you be too chipper? Uh, well, you know, that's a really good question um, because... I think that in our lives, we surround ourselves with like-minded people, mm-hmm. people with similar energies that vibrate at the same frequency on a, on a reality TV show where mm. they are consciously trying to create a cross-section of society. Mm. You will be put in situations where there are people that you would otherwise never encounter. Mm. Like you would never meet them. And if you did... You certainly wouldn't live with them <laughs> or work with them. Yeah. So I think that, um, you know, that's a recipe for some fantastic jeopardy and drama. Mm. So Pun intended. <laughs> hey, there you go. Exactly. Yeah, that was a good one. Thanks. <laughs> Welcome. Uh, and so once they got the kind of uh, establishing or cutaway sort of shots yep. for their products, mm-hmm. what, how would the day then proceed? So we would spend a lot of time in a little kind of caravany green room, mm. um, which was essentially just like a tin can, uh, where was we it would fun at first, and then it became normal. Yeah, it was. It was fun at first. Um, it wasn't fun that we all twenty four of us had to share a toilet. Yeah, like a <laughs> at, um, what are they called? Porta potty. A porta potty. Oof. Ooh. I can never smell lavender room spray ever again. Right. Because porta potty and lavender together mm. is probably like it triggers me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um and so, you know, we would be given Uno cards mm. to, to while away the time. But it was also our opportunity, if we were in the right headspace, to sit down and sort of flick through cookbooks or write recipes. So I would use that time again if I was um in a in the right mindset, I would sit down and write and imagine, you know, if I had a paleo challenge, mm. what would I cook? If I had a cookie challenge, what would I cook? And then that way, that that was um, how we could, at the drop of a hat, whip up some Anzac cookies because we've already got that recipe in our heads. Mm. So that would be, you know, another couple of, well, it depends. So it might be another couple of hours if the runners then had to go from the, you know, doing those establishing um, drive-ups to setting up the, the pantry and mm. the benches and the challenge itself. It's, I think the crew from post, like from pre um, on onset and post would be about 150 people. Yeah, it's, it's a huge operation. Huge. And so that, 
um, basically meant that there were a lot of stakeholders and a lot of personalities and a lot of, um, you know, people whose jobs were on the line basically. And I think that some people weren't as conscious of that as others and, you know, Mm. um, as in contestants. We basically, I think, were reduced uh, or reduced ourselves to being like kids Mm. because we were told when to wake up, when to go to bed and when to eat. So I think we all came out of it a little bit kind of um, shell-shocked. We, <laughs> we, like I had to remember to look both ways before I crossed the street Yeah, because that was something that was done for me. Yeah. <laughs> it's really weird. Yeah. It's funny what you, what you kind of adjust to and where your mind goes. I had a friend on here in an earlier episode who um, was, uh, became the lead in a TV series. Mm-hmm. Uh, sort of, I mean, he was working his ass off for years, but it kind of came out of nowhere in a sense. And he is one of the most genuine and nice people you'll ever meet. But he made a comment to me like about just where your expectations can mm. go when you become used to being treated in a certain way. Uh, and then the need to readjust to a more, for a lack of a better term, civilian kind of uh, mentality. That is so true it's like you're in the trenches yeah and you come back out i actually did come out um and spent probably three months it was i came out and it was winter mm. um and i spent i still remember i spent three months hunched over my smartphone in front of the heater just scanning twitter and just like you know didn't really want to go outside yeah right didn't really want to engage with people because the show was still on yeah. And, um, you know, there's a there's a gap between when you're eliminated and when it actually airs. Mm. So when people see you out, they ask you questions, you know, did you win? Were you eliminated? And you just don't want to deal with mm. that. Um, and so, you know, as I said, like, I hope I haven't put people off, but um, <laughs> I, I also hope that it kind of helps to build some compassion in. So when you're watching the show and you see someone break down, it's not because their souffle fell down. Yeah. It's because they're sleep deprived, they're they haven't spoken to their families like that's not something we haven't even broached that but Mm. basically when we went into the program we were prepared for all of this so the Mm. executive producer told us that it was going to be an emotional roller coaster we were going to be put into a hothouse of um of learning basically so Mm. you know you could take as, as much as you wanted to because you could be cooking all the time um but by the same token 24 people who use cooking as their stress relief with one kitchen (laughs) (laughs) was certainly an interesting experience. Um, But nothing can prepare you for how that actually feels. Mm. You know, you can nod away when they're actually telling you about it. But when you're in the moment, it is like nothing you could ever experience. And I think that's kind of why reality TV contestants tend to gravitate towards each other Mm. afterwards because it's like you've gone through um, a shared tragedy yeah, of yeah. sorts <laughs> and now you know a traumatic experience and now you're bound forever yeah yeah because only you can only relate to one another exactly mm. yeah um so you have uh, buddies from master chef and from other reality <laughs> yes shows? i collect yeah, wow. them my <laughs> favorites yeah I've, I've got plenty of friends from different programs and i think also part of the reason why is because they cast us specifically for certain kind of you know, mm, um, attributes. attributes, and I really value people who speak their mind and are creative and passionate. Um, and so that's, they're the people that I collect. It doesn't mm. matter what show they're on. Yeah. And often, um, people go on these programs for different 
reasons. I never went on MasterChef. People ask me all the time, you know, did you go on MasterChef to be on TV or any of those things? Mm. I went onto the show because I wanted to learn. Yeah. And that's why when I came off it, I'd already won. Like I'd learnt so much mm. about myself, about other people, about maybe um, tempering my enthusiasm first thing in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> that was definitely, that was like something, you know, I learned how to deal with, with people and I certainly learned how to cook cool mm. stuff. And so um, that was, you know, the stuff that's come out of it, the media um, opportunities and the, the book and the magazine, that's all just been a bonus. Mm. Big bonus, massive bonus. I will take it. So, what? How was? How were you feeling when, um, when you did get eliminated, and then you're kind of readjusting to the real world? But then the real world, as you knew it, kind of ceased to exist because suddenly people know who you are, and there was no gradual. Mm. There was nothing gradual about that. Totally, it was really strange, and I've had it described to me um, in different ways. But you kind of. It's um I think when you're a, when you are a performer and you're building your career mm. it is a gradual experience and you gain a gradual audience mm. when you're on a juggernaut like MasterChef you come off and people will stop you in the street to tell you about what they cooked last night or how much they loved blah blah or mm. you know that they also have relatives from Georgia or whatever it is mm. um and it is really strange at first um i love it though because as i said i love connection yeah um but it can also get very overwhelming and i think that um for a lot of people because they couldn't escape their face it was hard but for me i kind of had the benefit um you know having big glasses Mm. where i could put contacts in or wear my like i've got fitness frames Mm. which are smaller and no one recognizes me yeah grow a beard you know Mm. which i tried to do was mildly successful, got some whiskers. So Georgian ancestry <laughs> <It's>, failed you. <laughs> it failed me. Um, so I think that that's certainly been quite the um, the blessing. And I think at first it frustrated me because before MasterChef, as far as the glasses go, mm. they were they they've always been a part of me. Like I've always worn glasses in different ways. But when you knew me, like I would have been wearing contacts, like trying to like you know, babe up as much as mm, I could. Fit in. Fit in. Instead of stand out. That's right. And then I went to the MasterChef audition and I happened to be wearing my big red glasses because, oh no, I wasn't. I was wearing my transition. I was wearing big glasses but with transitions lenses. Right. So when I was speaking to the executive producers and it was a bright room, I took them off and then I'd kind of be squinting at them because I was conscious of not wearing like half sunglasses. You yeah, know right. the you yeah, know yeah, the yeah, lenses. Yeah. I know the ones. <laughs> you know the ones. So Trendy. yes. And the executive producer said to me, Do you need those glasses? And I said, Yeah, I do, but I'm just trying to make sure that I, you know, don't have creepy lens eyes. Mm. Um and she said, You need to wear those glasses all the time for this show. Mm. Um, and I was confused about that at first, but now I see, like I thought, surely people will know who I am with them on and with them off. But even I, when I look at myself in photos and I don't have the glasses on, mm. it's you get the Clark Kent Superman thing. Yeah, Watching the show, you think, how can people not understand that Clark and Superman are the same person? Yeah, yeah. I can go to an event wearing contact lenses and no one will talk to me Mm. and then the contacts will start burning. I'll flick them out, put my glasses on. Everyone is like, oh, hey, Alice, I didn't see you there. (laughs) (laughs) So it's like I'm the plus one of these frames. You're a reverse Superman. I'm the reverse Superman. Yeah. Yeah. 
so I geek out. Yeah, how I guess how uh, important have have has it come to be for you to not want to fit in to to really st- like own yourself and to really step into yourself and be all of yourself. I think, um, as I said, with what MasterChef kind of gave me, um, I think that MasterChef makes you confront Mm. aspects of yourself and your past and your present and your personality and persona that you would otherwise go through an entire lifetime and not confront. Mm. Um, So, for example, I think that it made everybody regress back into who they were as kids. Mm. So for me, I found it, um, you know, I came to Australia not knowing the language. I had to learn it. Um, I was kind of bullied as a lot of people were um, as kids. And I kind of went back into that victim mentality. Like Mm. I was, I didn't want to talk out of turn. I I really came into my shell for a a sort of portion of it because I thought that that was my way of protecting myself and also of, um, I suppose, um, forging alliances. I didn't want to, yeah. you know, overwhelm people. Mm. And halfway through, I had a story producer, like the lead story producer, pull me aside and say, you are shrinking away. You need to own yourself. She said, we can see it on camera. You're sad. You need to just ignore everybody else. Haters going to hate and just be you. Mm. And in that challenge, I nailed it. Like yeah. she pulled me aside just before the challenge. It was like the Mexican challenge for anyone listening that actually watches the, the program mm. where I was the front of house and I really just did what I do, which is entertain and perform and we won. And after that, I was just like, you know what? I'm here for a short time. I'm just going to be me. Mm. And I know coming out of the show as well, they sat me down after I was eliminated and said, don't check Twitter don't look at social media because haters going to hate. And that that first three months where I was standing there scanning in front of the heater, mm. there were people saying like, Ugh, what's with Alice's glasses and all, this, all these like petty little fickle mm. things. And I think the Alice before the show would have been hurt and like it would have affected me. But after, the th- after that, I was just like, well, I can take them off. Mm. <laughs> it's no big deal. And so um, it certainly, I think, taught me to be a lot stronger and that I'm a lot stronger than I thought I was. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Taylor Swift was onto something. What? Haters going to hate. Oh, yeah. Oh, shake it off, it's called. Oh, shake it off. Haters are going to hate. Yeah. Yeah. Surely, surely someone more. said that before Taylor, though. Was there really a before Taylor Swift? I'm not a Taylor Swift fan. BTS. Yeah. I'm just being <laughs> controversial in a really beige way. I love it. That's so good. Uh, and something that you touched on uh, there and before was that there you didn't have any contact with the outside world, so friends, family, and you're going through this great personal growth but mm. without any kind of support from the infrastructure that you've created over your entire life. So how was that experience for you? And you were in um, you're in a relationship as well. So you were you engaged at that point in time? Just dating. Just dating. Mm-hmm. Cool. So that's a pretty big leap of faith uh, on both sides to kind of go. How long had you been dating for? Uh, about a year. 
Okay. Yeah. So there's quite a lot of trust established there. But even still, you know, to kind of cut off all communication bar like what? We got 10 minutes of phone call a week. A week? Yep. And that was so once the top, so that was top 24 to top 10. Mm. Then top 10, we got 20 minutes a week. Wow. I know. Big spenders. Double juror <laughs> output. That's right. And so you could spend that 10 minutes on anyone you wanted? Yes. Right. So some people were calling home. Some people were calling partners. I would call um, I would call mum mm. first and just sort of, you know, get a catch up. But you'd, I think that um, we were actually told to tell our families not to rattle on about, you know, what's going on at home or any of that sort of stuff. We also couldn't talk about the show. Mm. So there was very little that we could actually say aside yeah. from, you know. So you just asked to speak to the dog for 10 minutes. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> um, but... <laughs> Then I would speak to Nick and he would just... Nick's your partner? That's, Nick's my partner, um, my now husband. Mm. And um, he, even though this is a true story, even though we weren't um, technically engaged, he had a ring waiting for me. Right. And then so after MasterChef finished, he waited till I was done scrolling in front of the heater mm. um, for another sort of six months before he proposed or like nine months even wow. you know, so that I'd kind of gotten my head straight yeah yeah and you know he, he'd made sure that I wasn't hadn't been turned stir crazy and then mm. he went yeah all right you can have the ring uh, but back to um, what we would talk about is he would just reinforce for me that I was on the right track mm. and that no matter what happened um, that was what was supposed to happen and I found myself continually saying um, y- you know control what you can and just accept what you can't and mm. I know that's the AA kind of motto, but that really helped me, especially when you're standing there waiting to find out if you're going home or you're staying. Yeah. Um, you can't change the result, so you've just got to cop it. Mm. We could also write letters, okay. but they'd read the letters. So you had to be, right. it was very 18th century. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> just rambly letters. <laughs> Do you remember any of the letters that you wrote? Yeah. It was almost like stream of consciousness. It was almost like journaling, mm. I think. And I found some of those letters and, you know, there was a lot of self-discovery that I went through. But also I would be writing plans and ideas of what I might do after the show because, you know, there were a few breaks that we got to take where we went home. And I did get to see that people did recognize me. And um, especially after the show finished, I went back and visited my kids and they all freaked out. These are my students, not my children. I don't have children of my own aside (laughs) from my fur child. Yes, my my 18 children. Um, So, and they were all so excited to see me. And so that was when I really kicked things into gear with following my my goals, my Mm. passions. What were some of those things that you kind of were forecasting for yourself to create? So... Um, a lot of the time, especially when I was super stressed waiting in the tin can, mm. I was um, adding detail to a bus, which I kind of thought that I could make like a, a bus called Z-Bus, um, mm. which would spread the food buzz around about mm. how fun food could be. And I you know, had big glasses on the front and, you know, food drawn up everywhere and I remember one of my fellow contestants, we were in Italy, mm. as you do, um, and she said to me, that bus, it's not a real bus. That's the vehicle. Mm. And that vehicle could be anything. And I use that and I still continue to use that because, you know, I think that um, when you limit yourself to your own experience of what is possible, sure, I can go and visit 
one school, another school every day and ran, run myself ragged. Mm. But I had to think cleverly about how I could get my message out in a massive way as quickly as possible. So um, once I was eliminated, what I did was I sat down and I drew myself almost like a, a mind map or a wheel and it sort of said, you know, my, my message in the middle. So I thought I'm a, I'm a teacher but bigger. Mm. My message is food is fun. How am I going to get that out there? So I wrote, I'm going to get a radio spot. I'm going to get a magazine column. I'm going to write a book. I'm going to try and get some TV. Mm. And I thought about ways that I was going to then, um, you know, access those areas. And I never could have imagined at that point. I know, it, again, it sounds twee, but, you know, that 2012 was four years ago. Mm. That wheel is well and truly in motion. You know, I'm, I've got a regular spot with Raf on Foodie Tuesdays on... 774 i've got a food editor of a magazine um uh, so i've got my column Uh, i published a book which i find out tomorrow if it's on the short list for the children's book council award prize wow which is you know pretty legit for a master chef reject um and obviously like crunch time my new show just came out a couple of days ago so i've got to write a new i've got to create a new wheel Mm. (laughs) figure it out Mm. yeah stamp your hubcap on that maybe yeah. So you were using um, the the bus was kind of the vehicle mm-hmm. for what you wanted to establish and create, and now you have all of these amazing things on the go. Um, how did you kind of make that transition? Did you just take action? You just started doing it. I um I've always been a doer rather than a talker. So I kind of once I had that list and I had some focal points. Mm. I kind of feel like I manifested situations and opened doors for myself, but I already had built up the skills. So I had made realistic goals based on my own abilities. Like Mm. because I'd studied creative arts, I knew that I could write. I knew that, you know, because I was an English teacher, I could write because I had studied creative arts. I could perform. Mm. um, And I had already, um, you know, done a little bit of radio-y, you know, little interviews and things. So I kind of knew what my skill set was. Yeah. Um, so that helped. But also, as I said, the universe is very kind to those who are open to it mm. and listen. So after I was eliminated, it was very interesting because within the space of about a month, I was approached by a publisher mm. for a children's book because when they asked me on the show, you know, you get like that sentence to say what you're doing now. Yeah. And I had all these things that I could say, but I, I decided to say that I was writing a book about food for kids. And I got approached by a publisher, basically just got an email um, saying, hi, um, I'm Sue, I'm a publisher uh, for Walker Books who I'd never heard of. Mm. Um, I would like to know how far along in your book you are and whether you have a publisher. You know, I had an idea that I yeah. wanted to write a book for kids yeah. about food. And when I went in to visit, the first question was, so... Um, we'd like to write a book with you. Can you write? <laughs> I was like, well, I'm an English teacher. <laughs> and I could just see them like visibly like wipe their brows of sweat. They yeah, didn't yeah. have to get a ghostwriter. Um, but I, at that point, looked around the room at this publisher and saw that they were responsible for Maisie, mm. the mouse, and Where's Wally? Mm. Like, you know, they, they are the children's book publisher. And so I knew that I was in good hands. So then it was a process of what do I want to say? What what um, mode do I want to take as far as like what genre of children's book writing do I want to um, dip my toe into? Mm. So at first I thought maybe I'd write like a a, um, a fiction 
about a little girl in a kitchen or something like that. But then I thought, mm, not quite what I want to say. And so I ended up basically applying my skills of teaching mm. to a textbook about food for kids. Wow. Um, and it's like an A to Z because I'm an AZ, Alice Aslavsky, <laughs> but it's also an A to Z because I've always loved facts. That's one of that's another love of mine. And I actually, when I was teaching, I had like index books for my students, A to Z index books where they would um, take on new words or new concepts and write definitions. And then that would be their way of like absorbing information. Mm. And so this is like my little you know gift to kids because I knew like there are cookbooks out there. And in fact, I don't think kids necessarily need kids cookbooks because mm. if you've ever looked into a kids cookbook, it's like snake sandwiches and stuff and that's no one needs that. Chip butties. That's exactly right. And I don't think there's such a thing as kids food. I think when we limit kids to that sort of stuff, we um it's demeaning. It's like it's simplifying the process and it's saying this is where you sit. This is where we sit. It compartmentalizes food. And I think that that's really negative. It's a mm. negative place to come from. So I would much rather arm them with the skills to then go into any cookbook and say, I know what a quince is. So I'm going to try my hand at poaching quinces with some grown up eyeballs because it's hot. Mm. You know, so I think it's like I'm acting as a bridge between food and kids and parents as well. Mm. So. That was one thing that came about. And I think that um, it, the process took about three years compared to normal MasterChef cookbooks that take about six to eight weeks mm. sometimes. Um, and I think that that was really beneficial because the book is not about um, harnessing or you know um, capturing the 15 minutes and hoping that people buy it because it's a MasterChef book because mm. um, that will only end up on the bargain bin you know, floor. Um, or... Uh, what I think I've written is something that will stand the test of time. Um, and I think that what's funny is that people will pick it up and kids will still say, that's Alice from MasterChef, but people will also pick it up and, and not know who I am mm. and say, oh, well, I've been looking for a book like this for my kids. So it's really nice. Very it's, smart. Th well, thanks. I, it really was a very organic process. Yeah. And the thing that was most important is that I worked with a publisher that actually gave a shit about the quality of the book. Mm. You know, they weren't thinking about just pumping it out. They were thinking this book needs to be right. Yeah. Not right now. Um, and I think that's really important for any creative field is that you work with people who are passionate about the end result um, and the process more than just dollar dollar bills. Mm. Um, and you definitely don't publish a book to make money. <laughs> <laughs> I've spent more. Um, I've, I've never actually talked about this, but I've spent more publicizing that book than I made as an advance on the book. Yeah. And that's because my ambition with it is that it gets into every little kid's hands and, you know, that they've kind of done me the favor of publishing it for me. Mm. But if I can get into those hands, then that's great. And like when we were talking about how to price the book, um, normal cookbooks are $40 or so, but mm. I wanted grandma to go to the post office and say, I can afford nineteen ninety five, or, you know, sometimes it's 15 bucks at Kmart, whatever it is. Mm. Um, that's affordable and it's inclusive mm. and that's really and important. Accessible. Exactly. Mm. Um, and in terms of accessibility, funny story with um, Kitchen Whiz. So, you know, that's one, that's one spoke done on my mm. wheel, the book. The show came about because my um, producer happened to be watching one episode of MasterChef. So basically Kitchen Whiz was a show that I'd watched before. 
Um, it had a different host, Bo Walker, who was a national volleyball player. Mm. You know, the guy with the dreads. Mm. Um, super cool. Um, and I watched it and I thought, I would love to do a show like this. And this was before MasterChef. But it was just like, a, oh, I, mm. I think I could do that. Afterwards, I got an, a phone call from, um, we all got like an agent for three months. And the, the agent said that was like mandated by MasterChef just to make sure we didn't say stupid shit in the media probably. Yep. Um, <laughs> and they called and said, you know, we've, we've been approached by the producers of this show, Kitchen Whiz, would you be interested in auditioning? And almost in the same breath, she's like, oh, no, but you're based in Melbourne, so don't even worry about it because they want someone from Sydney. And I was like, hang on a minute. I <laughs> do not care if I have to sleep on couches because they don't have an, a talent budget for accommodation. Mm. I will be auditioning for this show. And it came down to me and Justice Crew. Right. <laughs> and basically. It's quite contrasting. Random. Yeah. But because I had the teaching experience and because I had the food experience, um, I got the gig. But the reason that they actually approached the agent was because I was given an immunity pin on MasterChef, which basically means that you are, you know, if you use it, then you are exempt from elimination or an elimination challenge. Mm. But the catch that they gave me is that if I used it, then someone else had to go in my place. Right. One of my fellow contestants. And... I I knew and I was very conscious by that point that my students were watching that show and they had actually sent me a bunch of letters. Like basically we had a weekend to think about it. Mm. They knew from my psych profile that I was not <laughs> using that pin. Like I didn't need to be in that bottom three. They just knew that I wasn't ever going to cook in that or that I, I wasn't ever going to use my pin. Yeah. So basically um, I had that weekend. I, I used my 10-minute phone call with Nick to give Bo the phone for nick to say bo she's using the pin mm. i know her very well she's not going to give it up but um when it came time for me to not use the pin i said you know i'm not using the pin because i want my students to see that you don't have to step on other people in order to win mm. and the the producer of kitchen whiz happened to be watching that one episode that one moment and they were looking for a new host. Mm. So, you know, if you are kind and compassionate and generous as a person, the universe will smile upon you. And grateful. Exactly. That's right. And I've always been so grateful. Like I would be sitting backstage while we were filming Kitchen Whiz, mm. six episodes a day, high heels, contact lenses, sprayed orange because that's, you know, <laughs> TV land. Yep. And I would be like pinching myself because it's exactly what I wanted to do. It's amazing. It is amazing. It's a, it like you feel it. It reverberates, yeah. doesn't it? Um, oh, yeah. It's just like, whoa. Um, and so that was awesome. And obviously the new show, Crunch Time, I've got my glasses back. Yeah. That's when you know you've made it because <laughs> those lenses ping like a bitch. But um, I think that the problem with taking them off as much as it's great for television and, you know, um, a young, attractive female, mm. um, which – gets jobs mm. um i also need to acknowledge the fact that i am a personal brand and that when i am doing a class with kids i actually have to tell them that i'm the host of kitchen whiz and they still don't believe me mm. so it's important that i'm congruent and if i'm sending the message out to little girls that it's okay to wear glasses and you're still awesome yeah you know that then that's better than trying to babe up all the time oh, I'm, yeah. I'm not 14 anymore <laughs> You're not? No. Surprise. Damn. Time <laughs> Look at these crow's feet. <laughs> yeah, not yet. One <sighs> thing that I love to talk to people about, which you touched on there, was about 
gratitude and appreciation and being kind and these are kind of traits that you know now that we're in our 30s we um kind of start really exploring maybe we i don't know about you but for me there's been kind of this exploration over the last few years of self-discovery and and almost i guess a spiritual kind of awakening Um, and we had similar upbringings in that you know uh, from a religious point of view Mm. where we went to school the kind of communities that we hung out in um, how important has it become for you these kind to to really explore yourself and to find uh, gratitude and compassion? Um, That's such a good question to ask me now. If you'd asked me a year ago, it would have been a different answer. Mm. I, um, you're right. We both grew up in the Jewish community, and mm. and um, for anyone that's ever had Jewish friends or is Jewish themselves, it, or a ha- or a part of any minority community, mm. that. You would know how much judgment there is within that space, mm. um, and I think that being a migrant um, within that sort of um, very clicky community, and also having come from you know um, basically come from nothing. When we came to Australia, we had absolutely nothing, and I was at a school where um, the kids were walking to the, the synagogue from their mansion in North Caulfield. Mm. It made me look at that and say, well. That's what it means to be Jewish. And so I really rejected my own, you know, Judaism when people at uni especially would say, oh, you know, what's your, what school did you go to? And I'd say, I went to Yavna, but um, I'm a really bad Jew. You know, yeah. I'm Jewish. I would make jokes. <laughs> I would try and sort of... Um, Believe it or not, that's not the first time that joke has been made on this podcast. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Who made that joke? I'm trying to look through the list. Tegan uh, Higginbotham. Oh, yeah. Uh, who was half, one of her parents was Jewish. She mm-hmm. said, I used to say I was Jewish. Yes. Uh, Jewish. I mean, I still use that, but I use it with pride now because mm. it's something that I've definitely been exploring. Um, certainly, when, so at uni, I rejected it. And, you know, in my workplace, especially, um, I worked at a, an Anglican school. So, again, like, you know, they'd be singing hymns about the heathens and stuff and I'd just be like "Mm, this is weird but (laughs) just go with it whatever you know and I married or I was you know dating a a succession of non-Jewish guys Um, I've got a type and (laughs) (laughs) if you you know tall blondes are my jam (laughs) but um, you don't tend to see them a lot in the Jewish community surprisingly (laughs) Hitler might have like picked them up oh if if there had been that prick Uh, (laughs) so um, basically I came into MasterChef very much um, assimilated. Mm. And yet, in that very first audition where you meet the executive producers, the first, one of the first questions was, um, do you cook Jewish food? Yeah. How are you at chicken soup? And suddenly, oh, my Yavna accent came back and I could talk <laughs> about the matzo balls and everything. You know, I, I started to realize that that part of myself was really important. Yeah. It was different. It was special. Um, and I know having come out of the program, I meet people, I meet Jews and they say, we watched you. We were so proud of you as a mm. family. And I was really uncomfortable with it at first, to be honest, because I'd also cooked pork on the program. Um, and I, you know, this, there was a lot of guilt and, and shame, even though, you know, I'm an active eater of bacon. Uh, there I can say it now, see, mm. without like feeling like the, the, the clouds, the, the heavens are going to open, I'm going to get smited. The old man in the sky is yeah. going to write you on his naughty list. Yes. But um, I last year really it came to a head because I was asked to um, host the Great Hullabake, 
which is basically two and a half thousand Jewish women. You know, it's it's all across the world, but in Melbourne, it was two and a half thousand Jewish women and girls coming together to bake color in the Glicks factory. Mm. Um, if you Google it and see the photos, it's out of this world. It's mm. crazy, and I had a real spiritual uh, that um, how would you describe it um, dilemma. Because I hadn't grown up making colour with my mum um, because she had grown up in communist you know, Georgia in, in mm. a, a regime where that just was not a thing like for her mother. Or, and so I felt like I was an imposter and I felt like I was um, going to get up there and everyone was going to judge me and say, what a hypocrite, you know, you don't keep the Shabbos or any of those things. And um, I worked through it. I um, spoke to other Jewish people in the public eye about their experience with it. But more importantly, I worked with um, my acupuncturist who also happens to be Jewish um, and she helped me break past that guilt and shame Mm. and realise that what I was doing now was more important for the community than quietly keeping the Shabbos or making challah as a kid. Mm. That the only person that could decide whether I was a bad Jew or not is me. Mm. And if I'm representing our community in a way that makes people think, hey, Jews are cool, they make bagels, (laughs) (laughs) then that's awesome. And I feel really proud to now say I'm Jewish Mm. and own it. It's amazing. Drops mic. (laughs) (laughs) Exits the room. Exits the room. left the podcast. (laughs) Shalom. (laughs) Well, I do feel as though um, we could probably talk for hours and hours. It's so nice when you do uh, catch up with someone from the past and you can just kind of slot back into a previously established rapport. Um, But I am always conscious of uh, other people's time and I really appreciate that you would come and speak with me and, and give me a little insight into what's been going on <laughs> in your world for the last 10 or 15 years since we last spoke. <laughs> um, I have one question that I end the show with. <sighs> what makes you silly? What makes me silly? Um, kids. Every time that I work with kids, it reminds me that I am a kid at heart and it re, uh, re-energizes me, reinvigorates me. I could have done... Part of that challah bake, actually, I did a massive um, bake at Chadston where we did 14 workshops with kids. Wow. Over 700 children baking challah. And the only thing that kept me going was that energetic Mm. kind of exchange between me and the kids. And it just releases something in me that I think will keep me young forever. It's amazing. And silly forever. (laughs) (laughs) Where can the good people at home find, see, hear, read you? All of the places. So you can read me in the weekly review, uh, which um, is all around Melbourne, but you can also read me online at aliceinframes.com. You can see me uh, at Paran Market. I've got demos all the time or um, at other food festivals. So you can check that out on Alice in Frames on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Um, And you can find me around Melbourne. I'm a pretty friendly person. <laughs> if you haven't already <laughs> gathered that. So if you do see me, give me a high five. Let's connect. High five. Yeah, <laughs> we just connected. It's good. Uh, just quickly, Alice in Frames, is that a, uh, a reference to an 80s rock metal band? Shit, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes. Thank you so much, Alice. <laughs> Call me Al. <laughs> hey, that's my line. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>